and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you do not have a Bible with you, um, be sure to grab one on your way out. We have these little blue Bibles out in the narthex on the black table. Uh, Please feel free to take one with you. Uh, You can also turn to uh, the page that's in your bulletin that I didn't write down uh, to look at it in the pew Bibles in front of you. All right. So we're continuing in our series in Mark this morning. Um, in his book, Into the Wild, John Krakauer tells the true story of Chris McCandless. Uh, McCandless uh, had grown up in a wealthy suburb of Washington, D.C. He had been an elite athlete, and uh, he had recently graduated with honors from Emory University. And in April of 1992, he hitchhiked to Alaska, and he walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. He had given $25,000 in savings to charity. He had abandoned his car and most of his possessions. He had burned all the cash in his wallet, and he walked into the wild. Four months later, his body was found in an abandoned bus by a hunter. He'd starved to death. The wilderness is a scary place. It's a desolate place. We actually looked at that last week, that word for wilderness could actually be translated the desolate place. As we saw last week, it's a metaphor for where we all need to see that we are in order to see our need for Jesus. We live in the wilderness, right? I mean, we live in a world made desolate by sin. And we experience the desolation of the wilderness in many ways, in our lives. We experience it whenever we experience sickness in our bodies. We experience the desolation of the wilderness whenever we experience fractured psyches, whenever we experience seared consciences, whenever we experience wounded emotions, whenever we experience violated personhood, whenever we experience brokenness in our relationships, whenever we experience the brokenness of society as a whole, we are experiencing the desolation of the wilderness. The wilderness is not a safe place. For all the beauty of this world that God has made, it is, because of sin, a desolate place all the same. And even our best days fall short of the glory and the harmony and the beauty that will characterize that final day that will go on forever when Jesus returns. And so for now, for just a little while longer, we remain in the wilderness. Last week we saw that Jesus is our royal Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the the one prophesied by Isaiah to come and lead a new exodus, God in the flesh, leading his people out of the wilderness into the promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where there's no more tears and no more sorrow and no more sickness and no more death. And we experience the fullness of God's presence on a new creation forever. Well, to lead them out, Jesus had to enter in. Jesus had to go into the wild. In fact, he had to go deeper than any of us have ever had to go, and he had to go alone. The text tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness alone, 40 days. Wild animals were there, but so much more. 
a supernatural foe. And the question while Jesus was in the wilderness was this, would he trust that God is good and overcome? Or would he succumb to the temptation of the enemy in the wilderness? Before he went into the wilderness, the text tells us that Jesus went into the water, the Jordan River, to be baptized. And, and after the baptism, the Spirit of God, like the, the, you know, the clouds, the, the heavens were rent open. The Spirit of God came down. What does all this mean? Well, we learn a lot more, actually, about Jesus' identity. You remember that was one of the key themes last week. But more importantly, I think, than learning about his identity in this passage is the fact that we see him identifying with us. We see him identifying, the Son of God, the royal Messiah, identifying with us in his baptism, identifying with us in our sin, in the wilderness, representing us in our weakness. So we actually learn a lot in this passage, but there's just three things that we're going to look at this morning The first is that in the water, Jesus identified with us. In the water, in the waters of baptism, Jesus identified with us. Second, that in the wilderness, he represented us. And then third, that because Jesus overcame, we too shall overcome. So in the water, Jesus identified with us. In the wild, He represented us, and because he overcame, we will overcome. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage and continue our series through this gospel, we pray that you would take the truths that we're looking at and by the power of your Spirit overcome that uh, inherent uh, disbelief, that inherent doubt, that inherent belief that this can't possibly be as good as it actually is. And Lord, would you take these truths and seal them to our hearts this morning? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So first, in the water, Jesus identified with us. Let's take a look at verses uh, 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, let's just stop there. So last week, we saw that John was in the wilderness. He was, he was offering this baptism as a sign of repentance. He was calling people to confess their sins, and crowds were coming out from the Judean countryside and from Jerusalem. They were confessing their sin. They were being baptized. Here's Jesus coming and saying that he wants to be baptized. This Jesus, who had no sin to confess who had nothing from which he needed to turn in order to demonstrate his repentance, wanting to be baptized. John, understandably, and we read this in, uh, you actually read about the baptism of Jesus in all four of the Gospels. And so in Matthew and Luke, you read um, Jesus, I'm sorry, you read John saying to Jesus, wait a minute, you should be baptizing me. (laughs) I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, this has to happen in order to fulfill all righteousness. And what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus had to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness? Well, the number of things that could be said, the first thing I want to point out is that that means that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he had come to do. There was no sense in which Jesus was like, you know what, all these people are really into me. Maybe I'm the Messiah. 
Jesus knew what he had come to do. He knew specifically that God had called him to identify with his people in their sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, the author of Hebrews tells us, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He knew He knew that in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, where Isaiah prophesied that God would strike the one for our sin, that on him he would bear our reproach. Jesus knew that that was referring to him. And so in his baptism, though he had no sin, he identified with us in our sin. He demonstrated there that he was willing to do so through his baptism, and he was praised by his father for doing so. So look down at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, last week, you know, we saw how even in the, those first three verses, we get this picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is, on the one hand, the royal Messiah, the king that was anticipated from ages long ago. He's also the suffering servant, the one who would lay down his life for his people from Isaiah. And you see that again right here. You are my son, we read in verse 11. You are my son. That is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was an enthronement psalm. It was a psalm that was sung whenever a king in Israel ascended to the throne. This is God saying, you are the royal Messiah. You are the king. God says, you are my beloved son. A whole sermon could be devoted to that word, beloved, In Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, the son whom you love, and put him on the altar for a sacrifice. And here, God is, as it were, saying, this is my son, my only son, the son whom I love, and you will take him and you will put him on the cross for a sacrifice. You are my beloved son, God says. With you I am well pleased. That is pulled from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. In fact, let me just read it real quick. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so even here, it's pulling out, again, remember, Psalm Isaiah 39 through 55, the book of the suffering servant. So even here, in the words of affirmation, we get further confirmation concerning who Jesus is. He is royal Messiah. He is king. He is suffering servant. And with him, God says he is well pleased. So quick observation at this point. God was well pleased with Jesus for identifying with us Do you realize that God will be well pleased with you if you identify with Jesus? If you put your trust in Jesus as the one who came to be both conquering king and suffering servant in your place so that you can have a restored relationship to God, if you will identify with Jesus in that that sense of putting your faith in him for your standing before God, do you realize that that same well-pleased that God has toward his son because his son identified with us in our sin is a well-pleased that you can hear from God 
for identifying with Jesus. God's words of affirmation brought further confirmation. This is Jesus, the royal Messiah, and the suffering servant. And then verse 10, we see the Spirit of the Lord descending upon Jesus. And what I want us to see here, of all the things that we could say about this, is simply this. The Spirit of of God descending on Jesus was meant to prepare him for battle. So take a look at it with me real quick in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now again, I I don't have time to get into Isaiah 64, 1, in which the people were crying out, oh God, would you rend the heavens and come down, and here are the heavens being rent. I won't get into the fact that in Mark chapter 15, the only other place where you get this word for ripped open is when the curtain of the temple is ripped from top to bottom. In other words, God is active here. He's fulfilling promises concerning this king and this suffering servant. The main thing that we need to see here, though, is that God is equipping his son for wilderness warfare. The Spirit descends on Jesus so that Jesus can go into the wilderness to fight with the tools for warfare that God provides, including to his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going into the wilderness. Yes, there are wild animals out there. Mark mentions that, and there's significance for that that, again, we don't have time to get into. But the main thing that we need to see is this is not a McCandless-like effort on Jesus' part to survive in the wild. This is warfare. Jesus is facing a supernatural being who since the garden had been attempting and looking for opportunities to strike the heel of the one whom God said in the garden would crush his head. And so now the Spirit has anointed Jesus. The Father has not only commended Jesus, but further identified him for who he is. And Satan has realized, now's my chance. Now's my chance to destroy him. And so God sends the Holy Spirit to anoint the anointed one. What does the Spirit bring? The Spirit brings God's power and God's presence. The power of God for spiritual warfare and the experience of the presence of God through union and communion with him. Jesus in his humanity needed that in order to do battle in the wilderness. Frederick Leahy in his book, Satan Cast Out, writes this, By his spirit, God gave Jesus that armor with which he would defeat the power of darkness, and Christ immediately went forth to use it. In the water of baptism, Jesus identified with us. Second, in the wilderness... Jesus represented us. In the wilderness, Jesus represented us. Let's take a look at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Why the wilderness? Well, remember, the wilderness is the place of testing and failure. You see that all the way throughout Scripture. The first testing took place in the garden, not actually in the wilderness. It came from God. God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the center of the garden. All the rest of it is yours. And behind that command is God saying, will you trust me? Will you trust that I am good? 
And the tempter comes on the scene and says, did God really say, you surely shall not die? And behind that, in other words, was you can't trust him. You can't trust God. He's not good. Many years later, another test would come, this time with Israel, this time in the wilderness, after God had delivered them from Egypt. They're on the edge of the promised land. God says, go in. Go in. This is the land I promised you. Take it. And the, and the 12 spies came back, and 10 of them said, we can't go. And the people cried out, we won't go. And behind, behind them was the enemy saying, you can't trust God. God is saying, go, take the land. Trust me. I'm good. And the enemy says, you can't trust him. And they failed to go in. So God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And those two events, the, the failure of Adam in the garden, the failure of Israel in the wilderness are so significant for what happens here Jesus is called the second Adam. He must succeed where Adam failed. Jesus is the true son of God. Israel in Exodus chapter 4 verse 23 is referred to by God as my son. God says to Pharaoh, let my son go. Where the son that was Israel failed, the true son of God must Succeed. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we have nothing less than the second Adam, the true Son of God, sent into the wild, deep into the wild. He was already in the wilderness. You saw that, right? John is in the wilderness. Jesus comes into the wilderness and is baptized, and then he's sent deeper into the wilderness, deeper into the wild, deeper than we will ever have to go. And when the tempter comes, what will he do? When the tempter says you can't trust God, will Jesus succeed where Adam and where Israel and all humanity, including us, have failed? Why the wilderness? He had to be our righteousness. He had to trust where we doubted. He had to obey where we fell short. But have you ever asked yourself, what if he had failed? What if he had failed? You get more detail again in Matthew and Luke concerning the temptations that the enemy brought to Jesus. But if you were to look at those, and we're not going to look at them this morning, you would see a common theme behind those temptations. And it boils down to this, Satan trying to convince Jesus that he can be royal Messiah without having to be suffering servant. You can have the crown, Jesus, without the cross. Just do what I say. And God isn't good. You can't trust him, Jesus. What if Jesus had failed the test? What if he had given in? If Jesus doesn't win this battle, there's no cross. If there's no cross, there's no atonement for sin. If there's no atonement for sin, there's no reconciliation with God. If there's no reconciliation with God, then the wilderness is club med compared to what's waiting. Don't picture Jesus in the wilderness swatting Satan away like a fly, right? This is Jesus in the humility of his humanity. This is Jesus in the weakness 
of his incarnation. This is Jesus like David before Goliath, but in this case, Goliath is a supernatural foe. He had to overcome, or there would be no way for us out of the wilderness. How did he overcome? Well, in the face of great weakness, Jesus overcame temptation by the power of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. By the power of the Spirit. The Spirit anointed him for that work. As we look at the other passages concerning the uh, temptation in the wilderness, we see that it was with God's Word that Jesus opposed and rebuked the devil. By the power of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. What does this all mean for us? Well, because Jesus overcame, we too shall overcome. Again, a lot more could be said here, especially if we were to look at Matthew chapter 4 and if we were to look at Luke chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness there and see how Jesus used Scripture to rebuke the enemy. And there's going to be a place for that. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. There's plenty of opportunity to talk about the spiritual realm in the Gospel of Mark. And so we will talk about spiritual warfare down the road. I do want to point out that in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, we're told by John that he baptized with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism is the Spirit that Christ gives to all those who put their trust in him. So we fight by the same Spirit with the same word. We're called to take our stand. There'll be a time to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that this morning, however, because Jesus did not go into the wilderness primarily to be our example. He did not primarily go there to set an example for us. He went there to represent us. He went there to overcome for us. He went there to be our champion so that we wouldn't have to be David against Goliath. Rather, we could look to him and say, in him we have our David who overcame our Goliath. In the water, Christ identified with us. In the wilderness, Christ represented us. But the battle did not end there. In Luke, Luke tells us that Satan left Jesus until a more opportune time. That more opportune time would come in a number of different ways throughout the ministry of Jesus, but especially in a garden not in the wilderness, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus would overcome that temptation. Jesus would overcome the grave. On the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the one who had been looking to strike his heel since the first garden. In the water, Jesus identified with you. In the wilderness, he represented you. With the Spirit and the Word, Jesus equips you, but it was on the cross that he delivered you. What does that mean for our lives right now? This is Black History Month. There are going to be many leaders in the uh, civil rights movement who will be rightly uh, held up and acknowledged and recognized for their service and their sacrifice throughout the years. Um, I don't know if Charles Albert Tinley will be one of them, And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of a bio on Charles Albert Tinley. You know the the song, We Shall Overcome. 
Uh, it became kind of a, a protest song, really, used in a number of different settings. That song was actually based on a gospel song, on a hymn written by Charles Albert Tinley titled, I'll Overcome Someday. Charles Albert Tinley had a lot to overcome. His father was a slave, but his mother was free, and so he was considered free. After the Civil War, he moved to Philadelphia. He first became a brick carrier in Philadelphia, and then he became a janitor at a church. He felt this sense of a calling to ministry. Now, he had, we talked about this in our men's breakfast a while ago, he had ability. He did not have opportunity. And so he learned Hebrew from a local synagogue. He learned Greek by taking a correspondence course. He got tutoring wherever he could get tutoring. He was a student of God's word. And when it came time to be ordained, he was ordained with high marks. He became the pastor of the church where he was the janitor. And he began writing hymns. Hymns like, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. And hymns like, I'll overcome someday. These are the first three verses. This world is one great battlefield with forces all arrayed. If in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. Both seen and unseen powers join to drive my soul astray. But with God's word, a sword of mine, I'll overcome someday. A thousand snares are set for me in mountains, wilderness, in my way, if Jesus will my leader be, I'll overcome someday. He had things to overcome in his life that none of us have had to overcome. But he knew who Jesus was. He knew Jesus to be the author and perfecter, Hebrews chapter 12, or even better translated, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Jesus, the trailblazer, who came into the wilderness and cut a path and then went all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven to be not just the pioneer and the trailblazer, but the completer in the sense of the finisher, the fulfiller of the faith. And Tinley knew that though he may not experience in full what it meant to be finally free from the wilderness. He knew that as he looked at Jesus, the one who had cut the path, the one who had overcome the foe, the one who had finished the race, there would one day be the great fulfillment of the truth that he held on to so dearly that in Jesus he'll overcome someday. Listen, all of us live in the wilderness we all experience, to some degree, pain and suffering and hardship, desolation. And the main thing I want you to take away from this this morning is that Jesus is the anointed Son of God, the royal Messiah, who recognized that his calling was to be suffering servant, and who went into the wilderness, into our wilderness, not to set an example that he hoped that we could follow, but to win the battle that we could not win, to overcome so that in him we would know that we have overcome and would be able to carry on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, these few verses. Man, five verses. There's so much there. 
Thank you for the way in which we see so much fulfillment of of prophecy, so much anticipation from the Old Testament finding completion in the New, so much of those uh, anticipations of Jesus finally coming on the scene. Lord Jesus, we thank you for identifying with us in our sin through your baptism, though you had no sin of your own. And Lord Jesus, we especially thank you for going into the wilderness for coming into our desolation, desolation that is our fault because of our sin. And not just setting an example for us, not being a David that we're supposed to be like, but being our David, that we might know that in you we've overcome. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.